First up, though, talking about the cases of COVID-19 here in BC, as well as in Alberta. If you've been following along with what's been happening in Alberta, you'll know that the case counts there have been much higher than wanted. Earlier today, Jason Kenney held a news conference talking about what's happening in Alberta, uh, about the current restrictions. He also talked about the possibility of when restrictions might be lifted. We haven't defined particular metrics uh, for relaxing the measures. The key thing I'm looking for is to see the numbers, first of all, start to flatline and then come down. Uh, and I think if we can start start to see a period of sustained decline in our average daily new cases and in the total active case count, uh, that will be a, a strong indication that we can begin moving towards uh, relaxing some of these measures. That is still a ways off, though. And there are new concerns that there is going to be more cross-border provincial travel. And could that lead to higher case counts here if we don't have the numbers under control? Well, joining me now is John Dooley, the mayor of Nelson, B.C. Thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome, Jill. Uh, Are you seeing a lot of people, uh, even with the travel restrictions that are in place, are there a lot of people from Alberta crossing the B.C.-Alberta border? We're seeing a few, but we're we're just a little bit uh, beyond the, the sort of fringe for, you know, day travel or even, for that matter, weekend travel. So we would tend to see less in Nelson than you would in, say, Kimberley or Fernie or Invermere Radium area. Are you hearing anything from officials in those areas uh, that they are per, uh, perhaps still seeing uh, more than, than, than what we would uh, be comfortable with as far as cross-border travellers? Well, we're really hoping, you know, we have a call each Thursday with Interior Health and our numbers in Interior Health have been, have been steady and declining. And, you know, basically what we've been doing is asking people to abide by the, the regulations of, you know, non-essential travel. Stay home unless you absolutely have to. And that's, that group includes the mayors of, uh, you know, the East Kootenai as well as the West Kootenai and the Okanagan. So, you know, we're asking people in British Columbia to abide by the regulations that uh, Dr. Henry has laid out. They've worked for us, and we, I would suggest that if you live in Alberta and you're listening to this program right now, that you should do the same thing, abide by that uh, non-essential travel re- regulations. And we'll, we'll get out of this uh, COVID-19, but only if we... Uh, if we all toe the line. Would you like to see stricter measures in that we can't physically stop somebody from coming across that provincial border? Would you like to see or should you, do you think there should be uh, stricter rules as far as a quarantine in place when somebody does cross into BC? Well, what we would have liked to see early on in the whole process was that there was more of of a coordinated effort between the premiers and all the provinces. And that's not to say that we're sitting on our high horse here in B.C., but we've done a very good job. And you almost think that people would take a look and maybe possibly learn from what's happening in British Columbia. And, you know, I think it's time for the premiers uh, to sit down together and say, look, uh, let's have a coordinated effort to non-essential travel or travel period. Because currently what's happening, in, as an example, Alberta right now, is it's just not working. And Jason Kenney earlier today actually referenced BC and saying he feels or felt like part of the reason that BC is seeing the case counts come down uh, is the vaccination process that's uh, underway. I mean, it's difficult to say that's 
all that's causing it. It could also be the restrictions uh, that are in place in BC. Uh, but with that happening, as you mentioned, a coordinated effort, do you think that would make a difference? Or are you confident that as more vaccine gets out there, uh, we will start to see that? Well, there's no question that more vaccines can definitely help. But, you know, what we are actually hearing now in the last few days is there's a number of people that aren't interested in getting the vaccine and they're going to sort of hold us all back. But the difference here in British Columbia, in my opinion, has been the fact that we've all been pulling on the same rope. And that's made a huge difference. And what I'm seeing in, in Alberta, as an example, prior to today is a fracture among elected officials as to what, what uh, sort of stay-at-home measure should look like, dining out measure should look like, non-essential travel should look like. And that sends the wrong message. This is a pandemic and we need to be on the same page. How have things been in your community as far as Nelson case counts and businesses being able to kind of get through this with these province-wide restrictions? Very good, actually. We've had, don't get me wrong, we've had a, a number of cases, but it's been very low. And in our catchment area, our health catchment area right here in the Nelson region, I think we have about 27 cases last week. Um, and I don't believe that there's been any hospitalized. That's very good news. Yeah, uh, we've, we've heard from some of the other communities and those that you mentioned that are much closer to the Alberta border where it would be much more common, I think, uh, people uh, going back and forth, whether it's for work purposes or for shopping purposes, but probably more, uh, you, could, you might to make the argument that work would be more of an essential reason. Uh, do you think that's part of the issue as well in that it, it might not be people recreationally traveling, it's people that are doing this because they happen to work in one province and live in the other? Yeah, there's no question that that's definitely happened. That's and that's fair. You know, people, uh, you know, people cross back and forth over the Alberta BC border all the time for their work. You know, there's nothing new about that, and that's that is essential as long as you're following the protocols when you get here, and before you get here as well. I mean, if we all follow the protocols, we'll do just fine. But let's face uh, facts here. You know. The least amount of contact we have, the better. And, you know, we're, we're in a position right now where we're probably only a few months from getting on top of the COVID-19 to a place where we can sort of manage it. But if we continue down the path that's happening in Alberta at the moment, it's going to be very difficult on not only Albertans, but also on people that live on either side of Saskatchewan or British Columbia to, uh, to uh, you know, look favorably on that uh, travel into British Columbia or even into Saskatchewan for that matter. Uh, if we do manage to get a handle on it, and hopefully we do uh, in BC with the idea of these current restrictions in place until the end of the May long weekend, if we do start to, to see things improve vastly, would you like to see the province open up on a more regional basis? Or do you think places like Nelson or places where the case counts are very low, uh, should they uh, perhaps open up faster? Well, what we're a little bit afraid of there is, and we noticed it a little bit earlier on, when the, uh, when the numbers are very high in the Fraser Valley, as an example, on the lower mainland, we were getting people coming to places like Nelson, um, like Nacasp, like Cranbrook, as an example, like Creston, uh, to get those long weekends and so forth. And that doesn't really work very well either, because if you're leaving an area where there's high numbers and you're coming to an area where there's low numbers, you know, the chances are that you're going to spread the virus. And uh, the bottom line is we need to continue uh, on the same path as long as we possibly can. And, uh, you know, the province has done a very good job of of, uh, putting funds out to help those in need and those businesses that need a bit of a leg up through this. And we need to continue that until such a time as everybody's 
at a stage where you can open up. All right, uh, Mayor John Dooley, thank you so much for joining us today and talking about this. Appreciate your time. You're very welcome. Thanks a lot, Jill. All right. To a brazen shooting that took place in Delta on the weekend, we heard from Delta's police chief. This is just part of what Neil Dubord had to say. We know that there is that anxiety around people. They should be able to go shopping, get their groceries, do their chores, do whatever they need to do and feel safe without the risk of there being a shooting nearby. That, that seems ridiculous in our world, doesn't it? So we're here to be able to say that this is a safe community. Certainly we, we are here with our command post to be able to say, we'll provide you the details necessary and hopefully reduce that anxiety and people can hopefully get back to their normal everyday lives without worrying about being involved in a shooting. Uh, as you know, there have been several shootings, many taking place in very busy public areas in Metro Vancouver. Uh, that shooting uh, that Chief Dubord was referring to was in the mall, uh, outside that mall in Delta on Saturday. Uh, you'll recall in Vancouver, outside of Coal Harbor on a busy Saturday evening, there was a shooting. Uh, so what is leading to all of this? Or perhaps more importantly, how do we stop this from happening uh, more in the future? Well, Suki Sandu joins me down, a spokesperson for the group Wake Up Surrey. Suki, thanks so much for taking some time with us today. Good afternoon, Jill, and thank you for having me on your show. What's your first response when you hear about all of these shootings? As a, as a citizen, as a parent, um, I think, uh, and someone who's been involved uh, with our Wake Up Surrey group since June 2018, there's a lot of anger. There's a lot of frustration. Um, there's also... Um, a lot of disappointment, too, in that, um, you know, my parents came to this country in the late 50s, and um, we had a sense of social responsibility growing up. We also had some, um, it wasn't easy. Uh, we also uh, had some discipline, some structure, and um, my, my mom and dad didn't have major degrees or something, but they understood that they had to... Um, you know, we had to become something in our world, or pursue an education, etc. So I think somewhere along the line, we as a South Asian community have to come to the um, acceptance and acknowledge that uh, a disproportionate number of our youth uh, are involved in these um, this gang lifestyle. It's happening for the and these targeted shootings, and are victims of this. Um, what can what upsets me more than anything is the lack of outrage or concern amongst our political leadership in the South Asian community and, um, and the other community leaders, you know, it's not always about feel good stories, even within our own families. Sometimes you have to have tough conversations, uh, even with our own kids. And uh, this is a moment I think within the South Asian community, we need to take a step back and so, you know, we've, we've done well over the last hundred years, professionally, politically, you know, we've got all, you know, business-wise, et cetera, we've thrived. But at the same time, we've got to uh, not turn our backs or be silent when we have social issues before us, like this gang violence, which has been going on since the early 1990s. 
Well, and that's the point, isn't it? That it has been going on for so long. I think you and I have had this conversation before. Uh, Certainly police have put the message out there uh, targeting parents saying, look, if your kid's coming home driving a brand new vehicle and you have no idea how your kid bought this vehicle or your kid's disappearing at all hours of the night and you're not quite sure what your kid is up to, you need to wake up to that. You need to do something about that. So if that message didn't get through years ago when it first started coming out how will it how will it get through now and until gang violence is not only limited to this region but it happens and sadly happens in various cities throughout north america however normally the normal um symptoms or the normal myths regarding those who enter gang violence whether it be social economic status whether it be poverty whether it be lack of education etc We've broken all those. A lot of these kids come from middle-class families. A lot of, and and they don't come from the normal, traditional, um, you know, variables. So so we need to get to the root of the problem rather than just having band-aid solutions. We need to create a comprehensive strategy, starting with kids and their parents, from kindergarten onwards. We can't even, you know, there's there's it's starts with parents it includes our justice system you know we've got our our federal uh, government is going after handguns let's just create let's just stop the political correctness and let's just go after 90 let's realize and accept that 90 percent of these shootings are illegal guns and anyone who has an illegal gun and is possession of one let's throw them in jail for five years Let's, if my son is driving my car and he's pulled over and has, there's an illegal gun, then I, I must pay the consequences as a parent. My insurance rate should go up. And, my, you know, and there must be some severe penalties. So what, am I, what annoys me also more that none of our South Asian political leaders have spoken on these issues. They know there's this lure for fast money and this lifestyle amongst our youth, some of our youth. They also know at the same time that we have a disproportionate, every year less and less of our, especially our boys, our our males are going into university or getting a trade or getting a degree or a master's degree. So there's some gaps here. We cannot arrest our our way out of this. We need to go back to the drawing board. Uh, Sorry, Jill, I'm I'm being very frank because I know if you're, if someone's non-South Asian and saying this, then they get called, you know, all the all the racists, etc. And I don't like that either. This is not about racism. This is not about shaming or profiling. Let's get to the facts of this. Um, so there's there's also an educational component, Jill. Um, our we've told the, the education ministry provincially that you cannot have a one size fits all. Uh, school district system, especially in Abbotsford and Surrey, where over 40% of your um, population is South Asian, and you'll have a lack of South Asian leadership within that, I- within your superintendent's office. Why not? Why not? Rather than having all this prevention funding, why not have a South Asian resource center with experts who speak the language, who can work with parents from, who can work with parents from kindergarten onwards we also have curriculum experts there because a lot of these kids are are no one raises their kids to become a gangster 
So a lot of these kids are lacking self-esteem. Self-esteem. They've they've got trauma issues somewhere along the line in their life. That has happened, whether family breakdown or alcoholism or etc. So let's what our point as Wake Up Surrey Jill has been to the various components of this. There's mental health. There's education. There's criminal justice system. There's parenting. Is let's create something outside the box. Rather than just throwing money at it and and having these conversations every so often, uh, do you think so? W- will that change? Would you like to see more of a focus on the education portion of that? Or you also mentioned stiffer sentences. Uh, I would agree that there should be. Uh, the, I mean, the sentences are there federally for uh, illegal guns. I think they should be used more. But do you think it's the education or the enforcement that's more important? It's a combination. It's a multifaceted issue. And over the last three years, we've talked to many parents who are looking for help. There are many parents who are also, we've created some awareness that parents are willing to come forth. And some of them are. Some of them are still living in denial that, and that, that they've got to live with. But um, if there's an educational component because a lot of, and, and there's also, we've, there's a health component. There's a justice system component. The NDP provincial government, when they were in opposition, promised um, Harry Baines did the MLA uh, of a community court in south of the Fraser. So a lot of these kids we can help re- rehabilitate by having a community court. Um, and also the South Asian community needs to come forth. Our business leaders, our, our p- political leaders, there has to be some ownership in saying, hold on here, how have we created this pipeline of youth that year after year, the names keep changing, but these are for the, for predominantly a lot of our youth is being killed due to these gang violence and targeted shootings. All right. Well, Suki, we'll leave it there for today. Uh, I'm so glad you were able to come on the program though and talk about this and at least uh, keep that conversation going. Uh, We'll talk to you again about this, I'm sure, Uh, but thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. One and one other point I forgot to make is we also need to create a pipeline of our uh, professionals in the educational system, whether it be counselors, teachers, um, and and members in the senior administration, principals, vice principals. We need South Asian youth getting into those professions because as our population is growing, we need to service that. We need to, you know, and our provincial government needs to fast track that. Thank you. All right, shifting gears a little bit in the second hour of the program, taking a look at housing in BC. And the BC Real Estate Association has released the second quarter housing forecast, uh, predicting a 33% rise when it comes to home sales this year, but uh, then a reduction of about 20% next year. Let's bring in the association's chief economist, uh, Brendan Ogmanson, to talk a little bit more about uh, those findings. Thanks. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Uh, what else are we learning from the second quarter housing forecast? So the, the real story is that the kind of record setting pace we've been on really since about last summer where we're seeing sort of month over month new, new records um, is, is probably going to extend for a few more months. But then we do expect uh, a bit of a cooling over the second half and into next year to still pretty robust levels. There's a lot of kind of tailwinds for the market with 
low interest rates, you know, prevailing over the next year, an economy that's going to be reopening and growing at, a, at about a 6% rate. So we're still going to see very strong sales in 2022, just not quite at the record pace we've been seeing more recently. Uh, and across, so then what's happening then in the, the near future? I think the phrase that I saw in uh, the report on the, the second quarterly report was still on pace to shatter uh, the previous records. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, given that we're the, the levels of sales we've been seeing just in the first kind of four months of this year, um, we're kind of on a, a uh, you know, we, we kind of, you know, the previous record in 2016 was about 112,000. We're on about a, right now, like 140,000 pace. So we're shattering records right now. So it's, you know, when we talk about things slowing, they're just slowing from kind of that really unsustainable kind of frenetic pace that we've really uh, seen the last few months. Sales are still going to be strong going forward. Just, I think there's going to be kind of a calming in the market, so not as much frenzy around uh, around each transaction. Uh, so, if we're seeing that then in the number of sales and looking at residential sales in BC, what are we seeing then with the prices? So, prices, you know, like like uh, sales are are uh, are, um, are seeing pretty significant increases. So, uh, for the province as a whole, we're expecting prices to to uh, finish this year up about fourteen percent. A little higher than that uh, in the lower mainland, especially around the Fraser Valley, where uh, we're seeing a real surge in demand, into especially single detached homes. So, you know, prices are going to, you know, be up, um, you know, 14 percent for the province, 10 percent in Vancouver, uh, closer to uh, to 17 percent in the Fraser Valley. So that includes Langley and Surrey. A lot of upward pressure on prices because we're seeing, you know, this unprecedented amount of sales activity uh, in markets that were really undersupplied, especially you know, following the uh, the, the um, start of the pandemic when sellers just took their listings off the market and, and really were hesitant to, to relist it. Uh, until now, where we're starting to see some new listings activity, but it's going to take quite some time to get markets kind of back into balance. Uh, I think last time we talked about this, so we touched on the fact that there does seem to be this pressure or this move uh, that people are are wanting to move to the Fraser Valley or figuring out they can work from home and they can move out farther out from Metro Vancouver, but there wasn't a lot of supply. Has anything changed there? Not really. I mean, we've seen this this trend kind of the further out you get from kind of downtown Vancouver, the higher the increases in prices have been uh, since the start of the pandemic. So if we look at areas like Abbotsford and Chilliwack and, and, uh, and Surrey, and even if we go out to the Okanagan, we're seeing really high uh, increases in prices and, and the you know, prices of single detached homes that are really started to kind of converge with Vancouver. So uh, prices for single detached homes, especially in the Fraser Valley, are starting to look a lot like Vancouver uh, because there's been so much demand uh, into that into that space and very little supply, or, or the supply just can't you know couldn't respond fast enough to, you know, to absorb this uh, all of this demand. That's especially true in, in smaller markets. When we look at a place like like Chilliwack. Uh, it just wasn't kind of ready for this much demand. And so that's why we're seeing like 20% year-over-year increases in home prices. And so where are people going then? If if people are seeing this and living in those areas where there is this huge demand, especially, as you said, for single detached homes, maybe they're bumping up their downsizing plans by a few years or thinking about moving when they hadn't thought about moving before. For people in that scenario, are we seeing where they're going? A lot of it is is really if we look at what markets are experiencing sort of the largest gains in, in activity since um, since the start of the pandemic, it's really places like the Okanagan, Vancouver Island, and the Fraser Valley, and some of that fits with with other pandemic trends like 
you know, on the one hand, we have um, kind of an acceleration of retirement plans. So we're seeing a lot of people you know, looking to move into the Okanagan maybe sooner than they thought they, they might, if that was their kind of original retirement plan or to the island. But now those those buyers, those kind of retirement buyers are competing with uh, people who are relocating and, and uh, to work remotely. So if you, you know, you can, uh, your dollar can go a little bit further in, in Chilliwack or even further out and you can work remotely. Now we have all those, those two different kind of uh, strains of demand all competing with each other in these small markets and, and higher prices as a result. Uh, and kind of going back to what you mentioned off the top, uh, that you're expecting uh, this, these records uh, to be shattered once again this year. Uh, but then in 2022, residential sales, the forecast is to pull back about 20 percent. What's uh, leading you to believe that we're going to see that reduction or that pullback of 20 percent? Yeah, there's kind of a, a push-pull kind of happening. Um, you know, right now, of course, we have record low mortgage rates. We have a, just all this momentum um, uh, uh, that we've really seen since the uh, since June or, or so of, of last year, um, I think because we you know, affordability is really starting to be uh, even more stretched. I think a lot of times markets just hit kind of a natural ceiling and start to kind of burn themselves out. I think we saw that in 2016, even before the foreign buyers tax was introduced. You know, the market had already kind of hit kind of an affordability threshold where things just naturally start to slow down. I think we're going to see some of that. Uh, we're also seeing slightly higher. Uh, Canadian mortgage rates, uh, and I think we'll see a little bit more of an increase towards the end of this year. Uh, we have a, a little bit of a change to the, the B20 mortgage stress test, which will require uh, qualifying at a slightly higher uh, minimum rate of 5.25%. That could have a limited impact. So there's, there's a number of, 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 uh, of factors that may lead to some slowing in the second half of this year, but we also have an economy that's going to be reopening and reinvigorated as vaccines pick up and is going to be growing at maybe 6% this year and 4% next year. So, you know, although we are forecasting a bit of a pullback still to a really high level of sales, over 100,000 to the province, you know, that would put it as like the sixth or seventh best uh, year of all, of all time. So, you know, it's a slowdown, but it's not, not slow. Right. And just one other question. We've been talking so much about single detached homes and those various markets. Are we seeing similar kinds of records being broken when it comes to condominiums or when it comes to townhomes, that kind of thing? It's really all parts of the market that are that are seeing record levels. I mean, the condo market was was one that was a little bit slower to uh, to, to kind of catch up with the with the, the impacts of the pandemic. I think it's one of the markets that we'll see uh, really strong and you know going in 2022 and kind of balance things out a bit. Uh, it's going to be really interesting though to see what the future looks like you know by by kind of product type if if single detached homes are going to be in as high of demand as they are in a kind of post-pandemic world that will hopefully be in soon, uh, and, and what that means for the condo market as well as, as uh, borders open up, immigration resumes, students you know, return back to universities. So I think we're going to have you know, a real kind of tailwind uh, on the condo part of the market. We'll see what happens on single detached. Prices really ran up all over the province in single detached homes, but it could be there's sort of enough of a scar on the psyche of of, uh, of buyers that they just really want space and they'll, they'll keep uh, paying a premium to get it. <laughs> uh, how much of a change do you think we would need to see in the interest rate to actually make a difference? Like you, like you said, with such low rates, that is uh, making it more attractive, making it more possible for some people to even get into the market. How much of a shift would have a, a real impact? 
the last time we saw um, markets really, really start to slow down, uh, we had a five-year fixed rate that was approaching 4%, and that meant you had to qualify at 6 with, with or close to 6% at, with, at, a, at a, the, the uh, B20 stress test. I think that's kind of where we would need to be. Um, we started just before the pandemic at a five-year fixed mortgage rate of about you know close to 3%. Uh, we're at 2.1 now, so it's a long way to go. There's not a whole lot of upward pressure on mortgage rates. We do expect uh, rates to be maybe you know 20 or 30 basis points higher, so you know close to two and a half by the uh, by the end of uh, of next year. Um, but that's not going to be enough to just really materially slow things down. We'd really have to see rates kind of north of three percent to have a, a, any more of a material slowdown in sales. All right, uh, interesting numbers, Brendan Ogmanson. Thanks so much for joining us to talk about this today. Thank you. Well, some Canadian companies are now offering customers the ability to opt out of Mother's Day emails. Uh, The email, you may have seen some of these already, often sent in the weeks ahead of the May 9th celebration, giving customers the choice, saying they want to be sensitive to anybody who might be dealing with bereavement, with estrangement, with fertility issues, any number of things. Lily Sun from Toronto beauty company Three Ships says her company got the idea to opt out from Etsy and so far she's noticed that customers tend to really like the idea. We got I would say like 30 to 40 emails back from our customers all saying things like wow like I've never seen a brand do this thank you we've had some customers share personal stories about things that have happened around Mother's Day or Father's Day that have made them pull back from the holiday Um, and they were really touched. A local company in Vancouver is also doing this and the CEO, sorry, and the founder of Fable Home, Joe Parento, joins me on the line now to talk a bit more about this. Joe, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, absolutely. Excited to be here. Uh, So what exactly are you doing as far as offering people the opt-out option on Mother's Day messaging? Yeah, I, I think, you know, we at Fable understand that these occasions can be really sensitive for many individuals out there for just so many reasons. So we wanted to give, you know, our customers, our community, the opportunity to opt out um, of of these, you know, email communications, um, you know, when we are celebrating, you know, perhaps Mother's Day or Father's Day. So what kind of things would you have uh, under, before this came in, what kind of things might you have sent out to people and sent it out in kind of a blanket way? Yeah, we, we, you know, of course, send out, you know, different gifting options um, for Mother's Day or for Father's Day, you know, featuring different mothers, different mother entrepreneurs, or even potentially, you know, some of our mom's favorite recipes. Um, so, yeah, we just wanted to give people that opportunity to opt out of that, opt out of that communication. Is there something about food and uh, the, the idea of a Mother's Day brunch or going out for a meal that seems to be more synonymous with Mother's Day, say, than other days, either Father's Day or other celebrations? Yeah, I, I totally think that. I think that our, you know, what we're building here at Fable and bringing people together around the table, um, you know, pandemic aside, um, definitely coincides well with Mother's Day and, you know, these special occasions. And have you had much response at this point? So, so much. And it's such a positive response from so many people, um, you know, people who perhaps did, didn't even opt out, but just appreciated the option and appreciated the, the thoughtfulness. And are, are, do they tell you why? Or I, I mean, that might be on a bit too much on a personal level as well. But sometimes people like to talk about that, that type of thing or explain to you why they're, they're appreciative of what you've done. 
Yeah, you know, and some customers have shared a bit about, you know, their story and um, a little bit about, you know, why why they appreciated that. Um, you know, and, and other customers were just just grateful that, you know, we were in that mindset um, and, and looking for other brands to also, you know, continue to do that. Uh, do you think there's a reason that this is happening this year in that it's not really related to the pandemic, but there are people who have lost mothers, there are people who have lost mm-hmm. loved ones who, who are really dealing with a difficult time, and this could just add to that kind of angst or anxiety? Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think it, could def- it definitely ties a little bit to what's been happening over the course of the last year. But I, in general, I think this is just long overdue and something that we should have been aware of, you know, even in prior years. Uh, do you think it's something that could then be extended to other holidays or other celebrations where people might be a bit on edge? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and I think you'll see, you know, Fable and other brands continue to do that. Uh, because it almost seems like it works. And then on the one hand, you're, you're, you're offering people the option of opting out. So you're not going to get if it's it might be a coupon, it might be a deal, it might be heads up about mm-hmm. a promotion coming up, which is what you want to get out there. So people know about your brand. But uh, might it also work in the way that then people remember you for doing that and, and you'll get end up getting that business anyway? Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, for us, it's, it's not as much about the business. It's just being as thoughtful. And putting ourselves and leading with empathy, one of our company values, um, putting ourselves into, you know, other people's shoes. And, you know, if if I was having that experience, um, then, you know, what would I want a company that, you know, that I'm the community member of to do and how would I want them to act? And I guess, too, it's, it's, got, it's, a, it's a big deal for people in that, again, this isn't happening just any year. This is happening a year when a lot of businesses, particularly restaurants and that, are hurting mm-hmm. and are, are having trouble just staying afloat without promotions or without a day that might traditionally be a day where it's even busier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. How have things been for you uh, through the pandemic? Yeah, it's, it's been, you know, there's definitely challenging moments. Um, and, you know, things have been tricky. Um, but, you know, we've also had some, some great successes and, and big wins at Fable. So I would, say, I would say overall we are, you know, very grateful for our community and, you know, people that have, you know, stood by us through many of our challenges and supply chain issues um, most, you know, most recently. Uh, I would imagine. And again, not to not to focus only on Mother's Day, but Mother's Day, it does tend to be historically it is a day that, that people will take mom out. So that's got to be, I mean, not just one more thing that is looking completely different now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, how do you see things moving forward then as far as do, do you think it's going to permanently change how restaurants or how companies market to people knowing that people maybe don't like being bombarded with all of this marketing information? Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. You know, it, Fable, you know, we're trying to market it, you know, and, you know, share our content more of a way of a celebration of the day, less of, you know, bombarding it with, you know, our products um, and, and what we're building. But I, I, I do think that the way that people are approaching holidays is quickly shifting and quickly changing. So I think you'll see, you know, more brands looking to offer people opt-ins or different emails or, or different, you know, marketing communications um, that they can subscribe to or, or not subscribe to. Right, because even talking again about Mother's Day, there are people that also absolutely love it and probably look forward to it and mothers that look forward to it for whatever their traditions might be and want to take part in whatever celebrations are out there or maybe try something new that they wouldn't have otherwise known about. Exactly, exactly, exactly that. And I, and I think that's why we want to give people the, you know, the option to, to choose for themselves.
So is that a bit of a learning curve then, or how do you figure out that balance to make sure you're getting to the people that want the information and you're making sure people who don't want it are able to say no thanks? Yeah, it's definitely a bit of a learning curve, but, you know, fortunately there's great technology out there that makes it really simple on our side. Um, but, you know, and, and through that, you know, when customers opt out, we just, we just make sure they're removed from those, from those lists or, you know, that, that email communication or um, whatever communication channels we're, we're using. All right. Uh, interesting. And uh, do you think, though, you'll see or are you hearing from other companies or other types of businesses? Do you think they're going to follow along and do the same thing? I think so. Yeah, and I, I hope so. All right. We will leave it there for today. Uh, Joe uh, Parento, thank you so much for joining us. Of course. I appreciate it. I appreciate being here. Thanks for being with us. Coming up a bit later this half hour, we are going to talk a bit more about changes coming to Stanley Park and the businesses that are in that park. Right now, though, we're talking about a very important new initiative. It's a new program. It was created and implemented by the Battered Women's Support Services. It starts today, and it's an outreach program designed to help people uh, to safety, victims of gender-based violence in Vancouver. And joining me to talk more about this is Rosa Elena Artiega, Director of Direct Services and Clinical Practice at Battered Women's Support Services. Uh, Rosa Elena Artiega, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, and Jennifer Johnstone is with us as well, President and CEO of the Central City Foundation. Jennifer, great to have you with us as well. Thank you so much for the invitation. Uh, Rosa, maybe we can start with you. And can you tell us a little bit about this program and what it's going to look like? Yes, well, we are happy to announce that uh, today we are launching this program. It's called Safety Changes Everything Outreach Program. And with the support of Central City Foundation, Battered Women Support Services has a team of uh, trained staff and volunteers who are going to walk the streets and alleys in different areas, four areas, downtown Eastside, Commercial Drive, Kingsway, and Granville Street area, so we are reaching out uh, mainly girls, women, trans folks, and gender non-binary people who live on the streets who may have to be at the street, right, uh, uh, doing some work, uh, trying to survive, and don't have a place to go, or maybe they don't know how to reach out the support, right? And what we know is that with COVID pandemic and the ongoing opioid crisis, this has increased the level of violence that mainly girls and women are experiencing. So we are going to reach out, build relationships, provide safety, safety planning. Maybe if they need to go to the hospital, we are going to accompany them, try to help them to meet the immediate needs and to maybe eventually make a long-term plan where they can access other services in the community, including our services. And Jennifer, I'll bring you in on the conversation now as well. How will Central City Foundation be involved in this? So this is a fund that we're funding the program, this pilot and launch of this program. So as a foundation, we're interested in supporting what we call community-led solutions. So those were... um, the folks most affected, those with lived and living experience, are are, uh, are at the center of creating new programs and services to to help folks really improve their lives in the inner city. And Batawim Support Services is an organization that launched that's launched a number of new community-led solutions in this last year of this um, this pandemic. And this is another example where we feel that. 
that their their uh, ability to build connections with women and girls and and uh, gender non-binary folks where they're at is going to be critical for folks to build safety into their lives and to and to try to make some some changes in their in their circumstances. Uh, Rosa, can you talk a bit about the need for this and that have we seen the need, unfortunately, grow uh, in the past few months, the past year or so uh, with the pandemic, with the opioid crisis uh, and and how that's had an impact? Yes, well, the need always has been there, right? This initiative was needed a long time ago and uh, before even the pandemic, right? However, for the last year with the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, we have seen an increase in violence uh, against uh, many girls and women, and as I said, trans folks who are living on the streets or who have to work on the streets uh, or who who's their community is on the streets, right? So uh, it's a huge need for them to have someone who cares who understands the struggle and all the challenges that they face, right? And that sometimes, for example, for uh, girls who are victims of sexualized violence, sometimes they don't trust the police. Uh, They may want to report the crime, but uh, because uh, they may not be taken serious, uh, depending on their background, you know, their social location, sometimes people are more oppressed than others. So having the support of a team of crisis workers who can go with them, uh, help them to provide their statement, help them to gather the evidence, maybe by going to the hospital and getting a a test, right? So this is needed, has been needed for a long time. So we are so happy that now we have this initiative that uh, we are walking. We are walking the streets outside of service hours that... uh, a lot of the crimes and the oppression that people experience on the streets happens in isolation where no one sees what's happening and there is no place to go. And and Jennifer, if you can comment on that as well, that idea of kind of filling that gap where if somebody really needs the help, doesn't know where to go, maybe isn't comfortable going to a certain place, that this will be able to not only identify those gaps, but also fill them. Absolutely. I mean, I think that that you know, the, the, the importance of this program to reach women to make and uh, to make that initial connection um, and is in order to, to then be able to connect people to services is something that Bedroom Support Services is incredibly well positioned to do in terms of their, you know, 40 years of work in, in helping women to, to build safety through their various programs um, and through the, you know, more recently through the 24-hour crisis line and, and online. And this is another extension of that approach of uh, building, initially building that connection, connecting women uh to other women and then connecting also to services and programs. So we're really confident that that bathroom support services is going to be able to make a real difference in bringing not just a sense of safety, but real safety uh, to the women in the inner city who are increasingly facing um, uh, more violence, uh, more and more um, more severe violence that we've witnessed during this last year of the of the COVID crisis. And Rosa, I just wanted to ask you as well, how will people know or will people see the the presence of uh, this outreach program on the streets or how will people be able to access it? Yeah, so 
Uh, many uh, members in the community, organizations, and people in different areas where we are going to go already have known Better Women Support Services, the services we provide. However, we are going to have a team of people walking the street, and they are going to have a logo, they are going to have their backpacks with uh, different items that we need for first aid and uh, the way in which they are going to know that we are supporting them is because we are walking. We have our uh, name tags, we have our logo and we are going to reach out to start building that trust, right? Because it's not easy just to in initiate the conversation. But we are already known in the community. The difference is that now we are walking the streets outside of service hours, right? All right. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for coming on and talking about this uh, on the day that it's launched and getting underway so people know about it. Uh, thanks to you both. Uh, we'll check back in with you at some point, I'm sure. But thanks for your time today. Thanks a lot for having us.